I've made you look at your reflection and you don't like what you see in the shadows. One of these days, one of us is going to inevitably kill the other. It's coming, Parker, sooner than you think. And when it does, you're going to have to choose. This is me and my friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things THE Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome, 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 welcome back. This week, we're running through THE Amazing Spider-Man number 14, The Grotesque Adventure of the Green Goblin. If you haven't already, please like, comment, subscribe, and review as your opinions, both good and bad, matter not only to me, but the curious folks outside of our listening community, who may be swayed by your opinions to join in. Shout out to the right minders, the big three, the key keepers, and the high council. To you I say, as always, I see you, and I thank you for your support. And to you all I say, Lenny Abramson once said this about America. The thing about America, it's different everywhere. But visually, it's amazing to shoot in the desert in the New Mexico light. It's really hard to shoot in that desert and make anything look not amazing. I don't know if he's right, but with amazing in the title, we're about to find out. We've got the golden liability ready for his close-up. We've got the strongest desert dentist on this side of the Rio Grande. We've got a grinning green-skinned goblin leading Marvel's greatest gang. We've got tumbleweed tornadoes in the Tula Rosa Basin turning tussles into Looney Tune cartoons. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got the Amazing Spider-Man number 14, the grotesque adventure of the Green Goblin. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned, look out, it's me and my friend P. Before we get into THE Amazing Spider-Man number 14, Spidey was running around in July of 1964. We've got a guest appearance elsewhere. You know I read it and I got the deets. Tales to Astonish number 57 was released in July of 1964. It was titled Giant Man and the Wonderful Wasp, on the trail of THE Amazing Spider-Man. Henry Hank Pym, the Ant-Man, also the Giant Man, for those who are unfamiliar, is a Marvel superhero who has the power to shrink and grow at will. His girlfriend at the time, Janet Van Dyne, also known as the Wasp, has the ability to shrink. Sidetracked for a bit, I know you've heard me mention the 616 universe. This universe is the main universe for Marvel Comics and spans from the Fantastic Four's early days up until right now. This is the universe where the Spidey stories I retell take place. In the Ultimate Universe, that's 1610, we see characters a lot more grim and real to the current world. In the Ultimates universe, Janet Van Dyne is a mutant and Hank Pym uses her DNA to create his powers to shrink and grow. In both universes, Hank Pym is a white beater, but in the 1610 universe, after an especially brutal beating he lays on Janet where he sicks his ants on her, Captain America comes to check him. He goes Hank Pym into transforming into his giant man form and then proceeds to beat the crap out of him before making sure Hank's kicked from the team. It's surely one of the most holy crap, holy did you see that moments in comics for me. Fun fact, writer Mark Millar had Nick Fury styled after his favorite actor when the Ultimate series was first released. His favorite actor, Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson is a huge comic book fan who has his own pull list, 
So he's out there reading just like you and me, friends. And when he saw his likeness as Nick Fury in the Ultimate Universe, he had his people reach out to Marvel to let them know if those movies ever came to life, he wanted to play Fury. Nick Fury, for those who don't read comics, is a perennial 40-year-old white man with the Reed Richards working and an eye patch in the 616 universe. But nobody's cooler than Samuel in the real world, and nobody's cooler than Nick Fury. So it had to happen. The more you know. Back to a villain called Egghead, and he's exactly how he sounds. A man with an egg-shaped head who is a genius-level intellect steals a page out of the chameleon's playbook and uses ants to set a trap for Ant-Man. The ants tell Hank that Spidey's been sighted searching for Ant-Man for a fight. Of course, Ant-Man and the Wasp team up against Spidey, and they do battle, as is the tradition in all superhero comics. If I've never engaged with you as a superhero and I'm a superhero, we have to fight. We have to have a misunderstanding. We have to duke it out. Nobody gets hurt, and then we team up. Them's the rules. I didn't make those rules, but there they are. The notables in this issue, first appearance of the Wasp Stingers, Jan calls Hank Big Daddy. Hank sends Jan to go find Spidey when he hears the Golden Liability is looking for him. Spidey catches the Wasp in his web after she cold cocks him. During Spidey and Giant Man's fight, Spidey screams at the police captain. Sure, Captain. Hold off your men so they can sit back and enjoy the sight. They can watch me whittle Giant Man down to my size. I'll teach that human step lander to tangle with me. Joe the police officer leaps a car firing wildly at Egghead's truck during a heist. Giant Man refuses to take an Egghead bribe. A goon calls the Wasp a nutty flying female. Spidey and the Wasp don't like each other because they're natural enemies in the animal world. In the second story in this great issue, the Wasp, a beauty to be sure, proves she's much more than that and stops a jewel thief using one sheet of paper. And that was Spidey's guest appearance this month. He and the Wasp have beef, but he's made an ally in both she and Giant Man, aka Ant-Man. Shout out to my junior high school homeroom and math teacher, Mr. Ant-Man. I know I drove that poor guy crazy with my antics, but I really looked up to him. Anybody who loved comics enough to change their legal name to Ant-Man will always be alright in my book. What I remember about him, whenever the class had an aha moment on a new math topic, his eyes would light up behind his glasses and he'd say, I see, said the blind man. Or he'd say, Ah, so. Either one. Love them both. Stand up guy he was. All beef aside. Now on to the main episode. The credits on this one, we've got some new nicknames for the most ballinest players in the comics game. This was written by Stan Lee, the poor man Shakespeare, with art by Steve Ditko, the poor man's Da Vinci, and lettering by Art Simek, the poor man's rich man. We're going to move on to the cover, and this cover is doing a lot in the best way. We get THE Amazing Spider-Man written in Spidey New Roman at the top of the page, as always. It's Spidey costume red with SJB blue shadowing the word Spider-Man. Beneath it, we have the usual spider webs on a goldenrod backdrop. The goldenrod is a cave roof, and we see stalactites hanging from the ceiling. They're not the only thing hanging from the ceiling. Spidey, suited and booted, is sticking to the ceiling as well. It's a gorgeous shot. We see his body in three-quarter profile as he grips the roof with the tips of his fingers and toes. He's staring down at our newest Spidey villain, the purple and green clad menace with the perpetual grin, Green Goblin. Green Goblin is wearing a dark purple sleeveless shirt that stretches down into matching underwear. On his arms and legs, he's wearing green spandex. His hands are wrapped in baggy purple gloves and his feet in pointy elf boots in the same standard purple. On his face is the creepiest elf mask ever in that same emerald green and I promise you we can see every tooth in his mouth. He is a toothy, smiling villain. His eyes are large and buggy. His lashes are as dark and as long as a cover girl's so I imagine he spent a lot of time in front of the mirror with a lash brush getting him to curl out just right. On his head is a purple sleeping cap. It's tip trailing behind him and between his legs is his mechanical broomstick. It's a shiny silver and looks like a stage microphone the crooners of yesteryear used on stage with the grill, the piece they sing into, as the tail and the housing, the part we usually hold, as his seat. Draped over his left shoulder so the pouch sits on his right hip 
is a lavender bag and he's reached into it and pulled a small orb from it with his right hand. You know that can't be good. His left hand is engulfed in flame as he smiles a bit spidey pointing. From the smoke trail coming out of his glider, we know he's flown from behind the shelf of rock in the background, stage left, and up to meet the webhead in combat. This is already a lot, but it's only the beginning. On that shelf, we see none other than Ox in his signature black vest, yellow long sleeve shirt, and brown pants. He's raising a beefy left fist at Spidey. Next to Ox, we see Montana in his signature SJB suit. The brim of his cowboy hat still wider than his shoulders and he's holding that Honda in his right hand and the lasso grip in his left as usual. And of course, just the man all hands, the fanciest of Dan's, Fancy Dan in a green suit and matching skimmer hat beside him. If that wasn't enough to make a kid choose a comic over candy for their 12 cents in 1964, we get Pip action. And in this picture in picture, we see none other than the incredible Hulk. And there are caption boxes all over the place. A black screen box with green lettering reads, Wow, just wait till you see the Green Goblin. Beside it, above Spidey, we get a ticker tape caption box asking us if Goblin looks cute and makes us want to smile. No, well they act. Before telling us he's the most sinister, dangerous villain Spidey's ever fought. Beneath the Goblin's broomstick, we get a red arrow pointing to the enforcers. And in the pip, above the Hulk, snarling and throwing a left hand that can crack the world, the caption box tells us what we already know, that he's a raging powerhouse. And while we're on the Hulk, this isn't his book, so you know we gotta pop a kill switch for Marvel's foremost expert on gamma radiation, Bruce Banner, known the world over by quite a few names. None of them bode well for his enemies. I'm talking about the Scar, the World Breaker, the Maestro, the Immortal, the Omega, the Savage, the Indestructible. Too many words, puny human. You ain't have to hit me, sheesh. My people, GC, the Incredible. Hulk. Robert Bruce Banner and his alter ego, the Incredible Hulk, first appeared in The Incredible Hulk number one in May of 1962. As Bruce Banner, he's five feet nine and a half inches tall and weighs 128 pounds soaking wet. As the Incredible Hulk, he's seven feet even and weighs 1,040 pounds bone dry. That's a little more than half a ton. That's a big, big boy. He has brown eyes and brown hair as Banner and black green hair and green eyes as the Hulk to go along with emerald green skin and a tinge of green on the whites of his eyes and teeth. Diving into his history, Bruce Banner from an early age displayed great genius and witnessed great tragedy. His father Brian, an abusive and violent but hyper intelligent man, believed there was an evil rage in him passed down from his father and vowed to never have children. But you know how love goes. He met a woman named Rebecca and they were married. Bruce was born shortly after. One Christmas, Rebecca gave a young Bruce a model and Bruce, displaying his genius, assembled the model easily. I imagine she gave him a 2,000 piece Lego set and Bruce finished it in like 20 minutes. That's what I imagine. But what I imagine doesn't matter. This enraged Brian. His child's genius enraged him and he beat Bruce and then Rebecca who came to her child's aid. And as domestic violence often does, it continued to grow in the Banner household, both physically and verbally for both Bruce and Rebecca before Rebecca, summoning strength no one should have to muster, but too many people do, tried to escape one night with the young Bruce. Brian, seeing them leaving, smashed Rebecca's head against the concrete while she was loading the car killing her. Brian then manipulated a young Bruce into lying in court and got away with the murder until he admitted it in a drunken boast. He was arrested and then committed to a mental institution. Bruce was left in his aunt's care. 15 years later, Brian was released into Bruce's care 
And it wasn't long before Brian was back at his own abusive ways and on the anniversary of Rebecca's death, while at her gravestone with Bruce, the two got into a violent fistfight and Bruce killed him. Bruce then repressed the memories of this moment and for years believed Brian was killed by muggers. A young Bruce, socially awkward but almost universally brilliant, grew into an accomplished scientist and was recruited by the United States Army while he was still in high school to make weapon systems. He gained a PhD in physics and continued his work, now ordered by General Thaddeus Ross, AKA Thunderbolt Ross, to create a brand new weapon on the heels of the atom bomb in the midst of the Cold War. This bomb would use gamma radiation. Banner didn't want to make weapons, but Banner lives in a world of donuts and dimes, so he did his order. On the day of testing, a young man named Rick Jones traveled into the New Mexico testing site of the gamma bomb on a dare, and Bruce, spotting him from his lookout point with binoculars and probably fearing a death on his conscience, told his partner, Igor Drinkov, secretly a Soviet spy, to delay the countdown while Bruce removed the reckless teen from the bomb site. Igor didn't tell anyone, nothing was delayed. While Bruce dragged Rick from the convertible playing the harmonica where he found them, the gamma bomb was launched. Bruce managed to push Rick into a trench, saving the young man's life as the bomb detonated. And despite being miles away from ground zero, Bruce was bombarded in gamma radiation from behind. I wanna read the caption boxes because they haunt me and I want you to share my dread. The world seems to stand still, trembling on the brink of infinity as his ear-splitting scream fills the air and he is still screaming hours later when he screamed for hours imagine the terror being in the midst of that explosion and not disappearing into less than dust that's horrifying to me it makes me think of dr manhattan trapped in a vault before his bomb goes off in watchmen or sarah connor standing at the gate in the terminator series as the nuclear bomb washes over her I dreamed once that a nuclear bomb washed over me and woke up screaming. So I apologize if I sound a little edgy, but it truly horrifies me. And we've used these weapons in this world on other people. Abolish nuclear proliferation. Mutually assured destruction should not be how peace is kept. Back to When Bruce is done screaming, he realizes he's in a military hospital with Rick Jones who brought him there. Rick now feels he has a life debt to Bruce, who he says is the first person to ever show any concern about his life. And that's good, because from this moment on, Bruce is gonna need all the friends he can get. Bathed in moonlight, creeping through the window of the hospital, a Geiger counter going crazy on a nightstand near his cot, Bruce transforms for the first time into the Incredible Hulk. The world's greatest nomad, the Hulk has been since his inception, one of the world's greatest heroes, and at the same time, one of its most destructive forces. So much so that he was launched into space once to remove his threat to the planet. Why did Marvel's Illuminati launch the Hulk into space? Because the Hulk is the strongest mortal to ever walk the Earth. His skill set? Let's start with puny Banner. Robert Bruce Banner is one of the smartest men to ever walk the Earth. That 128 pounds soaking wet, all brain. He is an expert in the fields of biology, chemistry, engineering, medicine, which came in handy when his lawyer cousin Jennifer Walters was shot and he had to give her a blood transfusion using a garden hose, creating the great She-Hulk. He's an expert in physiology and of course, nuclear physics. Norman Osborn, a Marvel Comics heavy hitter and genius in his own right, considers Bruce Banner the fourth smartest man on earth. Lots of people try to beat the Hulk by getting to Banner, but he's created a bunch of defensive weapons over the years to protect himself known as Banner Tech, which includes force fields and teleporters. You can't touch that man, but boy, when he gets angry and wants to touch you. The Incredible Hulk strength has been classified as class 100 plus, the highest ranking in Marvel Comics, but for him, it's arbitrary. Hulk's power usually is connected to his rage, which is limitless, making him strong enough to, by himself, destroy entire planets. The Hulk has not near, 
No. The Hulk has limitless durability and endurance. His healing factor can regenerate not only wounds when someone actually manages to open him up, but entire limbs. His leg muscles are strong enough that he can cover vast distances in a single leap and reach near orbit on a single bound. Those leg muscles also give him incredible speed. Over the years, it has been established that the Hulk's various forms each represent different characteristics of his psyche. My favorite Hulk for years was the Grey Hulk, also known as Joe Fixit, a snarky, arrogant Hulk who represents Banner's repressed teenage emotions. And the Hulk is vital to Marvel Comics history. He is responsible for the formation of the world's greatest superhero team, the Avengers, albeit in a roundabout way. Loki, god of mischief and Thor's brother, mind controlled the Hulk in hopes of using the monster's unbridled strength against his brother and god of thunder, Thor. But his plan backfired and the combined efforts of Ant-Man, the Wasp, Iron Man, and eventually the Hulk led to the God of Lies defeat and prompted the heroes to stay together as a unit to battle threats too large for any one of them to handle alone. Fun fact, Janet Van Dyne, AKA The Wasp, came up with the team name Avengers. Gotta love The Wasp. Hey, sorry Spidey, but that's Miss Van Dyne. I stand by that. The Hulk is also a founding member of the original Defenders, but for the most part, stays to himself in the world of superhumans. And there's a reason for that. My favorite Hulk story? Remember when I said Marvel's Illuminati shot the green-skinned behemoth into space? After crashing down on a war planet and being forced to be a gladiator, Hulk liberated the planet he crash-landed on and became its benevolent ruler. When that planet was destroyed and it looked like Earth's heroes were the culprits, Worldbreaker Hulk returned to Earth and wrecked every hero placed in his path from Doctor Strange to Black Bolt, the inhuman leader who never speaks because his voice can crack planets. The Hulk made him scream. Whether you consider Hulk a hero, villain, or some point in between, there's one thing you can't deny. The Incredible Hulk is the strongest there is. I've added a list of his essential storylines according to my handy dandy Marvel Encyclopedia and the Patreon show notes. My favorite Hulk quote? It's of course from World War Hulk. After decimating almost every superhero who tries to stop him with a brutalized black boat held in his clutches, Hulk says, Now, the city will fall. You have 24 hours to evacuate. When I return, I want to see Mr. Fantastic, Iron Man, and Doctor Strange. And if they're not here, I'll do this to your whole stinking planet. Hey, whose story are you telling? My bad, Pete. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the sign of the spider with Spider-Man written along its inner borders as usual. To its left, we get the title of this issue, The Grotesque Adventure of the Green Goblin, with Green Goblin written in green. Beneath it, we get a beautiful splash page of Spidey in combat with the Green Goblin in a white negative space. Goblin sporting the same bag from the cover, but now, instead of being lavender, it's a solid pink to match the pink belt he's wearing. His face is still wearing the wide-eyed, maniacal grin he'll come to be known for as he grips his mechanical broomstick with his left leg kicked out in front of him. He swooped in on his broomstick from stage left to right and has just hurled an explosive device from his left hand. A hot pink arrow points at him from stage right where he's caught in motion. Only the Merry Marvel Madmen could have dreamed him up. Beneath him on stage left, we see Spidey from the back, and we know from the explosion of purple smoke on the ground in front of him, and the flash of yellow light at its center, that the Green Goblin has thrown a bomb at the webhead. He's coming to Spidey's life with a bang. And Spidey, he's leaping back from the huh. spot, his left hand high, his right arm bent, both legs as well, as he avoids the explosion. Above his head, we get a yellow caption box. Here's how it happened. The gang at the bullpen said, let's give our fans the greatest 12 cents worth we can. Let's get a really different villain, a bunch of colorful henchmen for him, and let's even add a great guest star. So we did. And another ticker tape caption box beneath Spider-Man's feet telling us not to get impatient that the Hulk doesn't appear in the story until later, 
and it's worth the wait. So we turn the page. The Green Goblin is such a nifty villain that the sooner we meet him, the better. So let's visit a silent, shadowy basement laboratory where we find... And the Goblin, casting a yellow glow, his back to us, his face in shadow, is at a workstation tinkering with his mechanical broomstick. In the foreground, his mask, its large eyes, pointy ears, and wild grin, sits on a mask stand next to his elf-styled boots. Above his boots, his Goblin costume sits on a hanger, pressed and ready for dress. The next panel, SNS weren't kidding as the Green Goblin, suited and booted in purple and green, has mounted his broomstick and turned it on. It lifts him from the floor as he says it's purring like a kitten. He's made the controls simple so he won't make any mistakes before flying off to keep an appointment he's made with what he calls the most unusual group. And in a sleazy hotel room not far away. The most unusual group is none other than the Enforcers themselves. Montana, in a lavender suit, lime green shirt, bolo tie, and white, wide-brimmed hat, is leaning against a vanity dresser, puffing a cigarette, and holding the rope of his lasso in his left hand. Montana's tossed the Honda, the loop, and the lasso at the diminutive dapper Dan, Fancy Dan himself, who's sitting in a straight-backed wooden chair saying he's tired of waiting and wondering aloud when the goblin is going to show up. Fancy Dan is wearing his signature green suit, pinstripe shirt, yellow tie, and yellow hat with silk green bands to match, and is holding a newspaper in his left hand. He's left up onto the chair to avoid Montana's lasso, and wastes no time threatening the Midwesterner, saying, Stop tossing that crummy lasso at me, Montana, or you won't be around when he does arrive. Fancy Dan doesn't care how big a person is. He's not here for their amusement or their target practice. And finally, we see the ox, his sandy brown bowl haircut, small black vest, yellow turtleneck, and brown pants on. Ox tells Fancy Dan to keep the shirt on and goes on to say that if this is some kind of trick, the goblin will wish he never played it on the ox. As he rips a red phone book in half. Ox is just standing here ripping phone books in half. This is what he's about. Always, always random acts of strength. For no reason, this phone book just was ripped in half. It's driving me crazy to think about. Goblin better come correct. And he does. He flies in through an open window in the next panel on his broomstick saying it's not a trick. And he's ready to give the four of them their orders. Four? Hey, man can make an experimental flying device. I'm sure he's counting ox as two people. If you say so, back two. Ox pointing at the goblin says, it's him. But Montana isn't impressed by Goblin's fancy toys and bravado. He screams, you're nuts, Goblin. The enforcers said. don't take orders from nuts. anyone. But two. Goblin, touching down in the next panel, raises his right hand and pointing at the enforcers, shoots a finger full of sparks out at the enforcers, saying, Correction, Ox. I'm not anyone. I'm the Green Goblin. So Goblin is disrespecting the enforcers and the enforcers are disrespecting Goblin. Ox didn't call him anyone. Montana did. Goblin didn't even bother to learn these guys' names, so I'm already assuming he's going to be treating them as a means to his own ends, and you already know how I feel about that. Back to. So Goblin shoots sparks out of his fingertip. This small trick is enough to convince the enforcers, a tag team that's gone toe-to-toe with the golden liability, that the Green Goblin is to be taken seriously. Sparklers have been around since the 6th century, and for anyone who's ever waved a sparkler around, you know it's one of the least threatening of fireworks ever created, but the enforcers must not have gotten the memo. Montana, staring in open-mouthed astonishment at the sparks flying, says, Start talking, Goblin. I got a hunch it'll be worth listening to. In the final panel, the Goblin points his left hand at Montana, telling him he knows Spidey got them locked up and forced to do a stretch, a stretch being some time in prison, a few months back, and promises that he can help them get revenge. This was in ASM number 10, The Enforcers. That's BCC, Dr. C.K. Connors, How to Plan, here on Me and My Friend Pete. 
The enforcers mulled over a moment. I imagine they did a small huddle and came back with a yes. Fancy Dan, clutching his theater-length cigarette holder and Ox wearing a semi-vacant smile, both stare at Goblin as Montana says, Mister, you just got yourself a deal. Sometime later, in the plush offices of a glamorous Hollywood movie studio, a man in a white suit with a sequined orange button-up and a yellow ascot is pacing back and forth in the large opulent office. He has the brown Carl Winslow working on his head and a small pencil-thin mustache sitting above his lip. All around him, there are giant pictures on the walls, fancy vases, large windows, high ceilings. Behind the man, as he paces, are three men. Gray suit, glasses, brown hair, green suit, Carl Winslow shade brown, and a cherry red blonde in an SJB suit. The man in the white suit is named BJ, and BJ is big time. He's a movie producer, and in this moment of pacing, he's trying to figure out how to recreate the success of yesteryear. He says, Years ago, we won an Oscar with our movie, The Nameless Thing from the Black Lagoon in the Murky Swamp but we haven't had a good scary hit since then. This seems to be a mashup of the nameless things from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings book series, first released in July of 1954, and The Creature from the Black Lagoon, a film released in February of 1954 based on a story by Maurice Zim. Both of these stories have gone on to reach great success in our world, and in the 616 universe have been mashed up by the great producer BJ. Back to. While BJ is lamenting his struggles to come up with his next great hit, the three men offer nothing but agreement. You're right, BJ. Of course, BJ. So true, BJ. The Yes Men! The next panel, BJ falls into dramatics. Placing his right hand on his forehead and staring up at the ceiling, he turns his back on the trio of men and continues his speech saying he's got to think of a movie that will surpass the nameless thing from the Black Lagoon and tells his Yes Men that he has to be alone to think and orders them to leave him. Before the door of his office even closes, BJ gets the laziest bit of inspiration ever witnessed in comics. He says he's going to change the title of the movie from The Nameless Thing to The Unknown Thing, screaming that he'll make millions. That idea is one part lazy, one part dumb, all parts Hollywood, and I'm not the only one to think so. Because at that moment, the Green Goblin flies through the window of BJ's office, telling the producer he has a real money-making idea he wants to share with him. Goblin hops from his glider in the next panel, and pointing at BJ, introduces himself, telling BJ that he's the man's next star. And BJ's not having it. He calls Goblin a nut That's what and tells said. him to hop back on his broomstick and Autobot. Translation? Roll out. And Green Goblin replies, Very well. If you don't want a movie co-starring me, the Enforcers, and Spider-Man. And that's all BJ needs to hear. He remembers the way Spidey took the nation by storm two years ago and knows the golden liability is about as bankable as it gets, saying a movie starring the web-slinger can't miss. And he's right, you've seen the numbers. In a red negative space in the next panel, he throws his hands up in triumph, screaming, I can see it all now. I'll have a hundred dancing girls, a cast of thousands. Maybe I can get Tony Curtis to play Spider-Man or one of the Beatles. New York's very own Tony Curtis was a Hungarian-American actor and painter whose career spanned six decades in Hollywood film and television. And he was one of the most popular actors in American cinema in the 1950s and early 60s. Curtis's most noteworthy films were The Defiant Ones, alongside the legend Sidney Poitier in 1958, and Some Like It Hot in 1959, alongside other legends Jack Lemmon and Marilyn Monroe. He appeared in over 100 films and over 41 television shows, winning a host of awards and recognition along the way. As if that weren't enough, acting chops seem to run in the family as one of his children has gained great success in TV and film as well, a one Mrs. Jamie Lee Curtis. The Beatles are, of course, Liverpool's very own, The Beatles, the most influential music band in the history of the world. You may have heard of them, back to. 
So BJ is thinking Curtis or Beetle can play the role of Spider-Man, and Green Goblin, his mask and its perennial wicked grin, a hand to his chin, his lashes longer than my description of this panel, says those are good suggestions, but I'll throw you one better. I'll get you the real Spider-Man to play the part. In the final panel, BJ, bracing an arm on a bust of himself, beneath a portrait of a Hollywood starlet, calls the Goblin a nut again, saying nobody knows who Spider-Man is and the guy's so slippery that no one can get within a hundred feet of him. Spidey is a walking restraining order unto himself. But Goblin's unfazed. Hopping back onto his glider and firing it up, he looks over his shoulder at BJ saying, Exactly. Now you leave everything to me. Just relax and count your money. A few days later, 3,000 miles away in New York. We're outside of Midtown High, high school to the most fashionable teenagers in New York City, and Flash Thompson. And the gang are walking out of the school. We have Liz Allen in a red sweater with thick collar and ruffles and a horizontal pinstripe skirt, shade blue. Bruni in a brown blouse and matching skirt, so brown on brown on brown. Flash, fashion on, I mean, he's getting better. And gray pants and a green sweater with a large white F at the center. Where does Flash Thompson find these embroidered sweaters? Is his mom knitting these for him? Is his dad? He has to have a guy. And of course we see the goldenrod kid in his SJB suit, a pinstriped goldenrod and black vest, and red tie, a textbook in his hand. Peter, Liz, and Bruni are all smiles. Liz asks Pete how he does it, saying he's the only person in their class to get full marks on their last exam, and Pete replies, It's just luck, I guess, Liz. That and spending long hours studying every night. I mean, they say when you play with skills, good luck will happen. Let's go. And Flash, pulling the diamond saw from his back pocket and sprinkling it all over the lawn of his high school, raises a hand up to stop Liz's gushing, saying Pete's brains won't do him any good and ask who wants to be an egghead, not him. And Liz snaps her hand on her waist in the next panel. She jabs a finger into the Brandex kid's chest saying, it so happens, Mr. Flash Thompson, that you couldn't be. You don't have the equipment for being an egghead. Namely, you're too dumb. While a sandy haired boy and a red haired boy look on agreeing with her. Pete's eating it up. He thinks to himself, well, what do you know? Looks like the kids finally see the light. So this has turned into kind of a positive thing for Pete having Liz attracted to him. Liz is the most popular girl in school and now she's into Peter Parker and now she's making it cool to be intelligent. Just in case anyone thinks that if you have power and influence and affluence, you can't make people. She is making Peter Parker right now. She's gonna to continue to do this as we go on and you're gonna see how her opinion of Peter can sway all the opinions of the people around her to Peter's side. And this is the first time we see it here. Back to Liz storms off and Flash rounds on Pete, raising an angry fist. He says he warned our friend to stop trying to beat his time with Liz. And Pete, a smile on his lips, replies, Beat what time? You've got about as much chance with her as Khrushchev has with J. Edgar Hoover. Nikita Khrushchev was the first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and its leader during the Cold War a war of proxies between the United States and the Soviet Union. Proxies being essentially the United States and the Soviet Union did not fight each other directly. Instead, they had a bunch of other countries fight each other in little skirmishes with both sides backing different groups. J. Edgar Hoover, the first director of the FBI, was everything wrong with policing in America while posing as everything right. He was instrumental in forming the FBI and modernizing policing in the 20th century. His work led to a centralized fingerprint database and forensics laboratories. And it was he who created the blacklist of terrorists still used today by America's law enforcement agencies. If you're a fan of the TV show The Blacklist, you have Hoover to thank. If you're a fan of violations of human rights and political freedom, you're probably in the wrong place. 
But if you are, you have Hoover to thank for that too. Hoover was responsible for COINTELPRO, an illegal and clandestine operation that targeted American political organizations through surveillance, infiltration, discrediting, and disruption. The operation targeted feminist groups, the civil rights movement, anti-Vietnam war organizers, environmentalists, animal rights groups. Look, if you were too loud about the freedoms you were denied or the oppression America placed on poor countries around the world, COINTELPRO was watching you. From Beatle John Lennon to the greatest athlete of all time, Muhammad Ali. And it didn't stop at watching black activists Mark Clark and Fred Hampton in a COINTELPRO-backed raid by Chicago police were assassinated in a pre-dawn strike where anywhere from 80 to 99 shots were fired. COINTELPRO targeted Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, going so far as sending a letter to the former urging him to commit suicide and believed by many to have a hand in the assassination of the latter. If not for the brave efforts of the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, who broke into an FBI-filled office in 1971, none of these things would be known to the general public, so it makes sense Pete regards him as a stand-up guy in 1964. I have no love or respect for this man if it isn't apparent. He was no hero. Yikes, Gerald, that got dark. I'm just relaying history. Well, can we get back to? Gladly. So Pete and Flash are going back and forth when none other than Radio walks up with his handheld boombox, gray hair, and brown Mr. Rogers sweater. He tells them both to zip it because there's a bulletin coming in. In the next panel, we hear it. It's reliably reported that a green guard figure on a broomstick has been flying over Manhattan for the past hour. The public is asked to keep calm until we can verify. And the goldenrod kid springs into action. He races towards the corner of the school thinking someone must be imagining things, but Spider-Man better check it out. Just in case. Minutes later. Spidey suited and booted is climbing the sheer wall of a building as Green Goblin rockets past on his broomstick. Spidey climbs up to the roof and deciding he's going to see what this Green Goblin is up to, he webs a chimney stack with his left hand, the base of a water tower with his right, and pulls back to build tension thinking he better not miss because it's a long way down. Spidey rockets from the roof and onto page 5, flying towards Green Goblin in a gorgeous panel, screaming, Hold it, fella. How about giving a guy a lift? And I love Green Goblin's mask. Any other villain would have a look of shock on their face, but not GG. We don't know what he's thinking beneath that mask. Cool as a cucumber, despite Spidey grabbing his broomstick, he says he was waiting for the webhead and knew he'd show up sooner or later. Spidey, grabbing the Green Goblin by the wrist, says Goblin's found him and wants to hear the man's pitch. Green Goblin says he represents BJ Cosmos of Cosmos Productions. He goes on to say BJ wants to make Spidey a star. In the next panel, Spidey leaps from Goblin's broomstick to a sheer wall nearby as Goblin continues, saying not to take his word for it, BJ is staying at the Ritz Plaza Hotel, Spidey can go ask him himself. This is a play on the Ritz-Carlton, a high-end hotel once located in New York City's Diamond District before it was demolished in 1951, so we know BJ Cosmos is paid paid. Spidey, never one to turn down a chance at the spotlight in his early days, shouts, I'm on my way, but if this is a gag, you'll be mighty sorry, little goblin, little and goblin. speeds across the city to the Diamond District. And so, after searching around the building for BJ's room, Spidey finds it and descends upside down on a web line outside of the man's window. BJ in a green tweed blazer and a red collared shirt, collar popped, of course, spots Spidey dangling outside his window, and with an excited smile on his face, tells the web-slinger to come in, adding that if anyone's gonna see Spider-Man now, he'll make them pay to do it at the movies. In the final panel, with Spidey perched on the windowsill of the upscale hotel room, BJ shares his vision. I don't believe in wasting words. I'll give you $50,000 to star in the Spider-Man story, we'll write an original script in which you fight the Enforcers and the Green Goblin. Spidey listens and he's got demands. If I accept, I don't want any interviews, no publicity, no sightseers on the set, and no phony romance buildups with starlets. 
Spidey's only interested in an action-packed movie with no plot. He wants to be Jean-Claude Van Damme before Jean-Claude Van Damme. Hollywood can keep its woman. He's spoken for after all. The classy guy, that golden liability. Look, let's blow some things up. I'll web swing by. But don't give me any of those dumb love stories. I don't like those dumb love stories in movies. I'm here for the action. And BJ says fine, but insists that Spidey's going to break a lot of hearts. Well, hearts are broken all the time, BJ. Page six opens with Spidey at BJ's writing desk, a golden pen in hand, as he looks over the contract BJ has already drafted. BJ is really proud of the nameless thing from the Black Lagoon in the Murky Swamp and tells Spidey he's going to make him more famous than that. But Spidey's not thinking about fame. I was wrong. Classy guy that he is, he's thinking $50,000 can go a long way in helping Aunt May with her money troubles, and he can't turn it down. And he's not wrong. You know I looked it up. According to USinflationCalculator.com, $50,000 in today's money is $446,111.29. He and Aunt May will be set for life. That's a lot of donuts. They'll never have to worry about dimes again. He signs the contract, and in the next panel, he is outside of the hotel room window. A web line in his hand as BJ tells him that he has to be in Hollywood by the end of the week. Spidey says, don't worry, I'll be there. In the foreground, hiding behind the building on his glider, Green Goblin watches, thinking to himself, It worked. Neither of them suspect my real motives. And Spider-Man doesn't dream that his trip to Hollywood will be a one-way journey with no return. The next morning at the office of the Daily Bugle. The Golden Rod Kid is approaching Betty Brandt, the damsel never in distress from behind as she sits doing filing work. She's wearing a green blouse and a choker, her bob, flawless as usual. Pete says, Betty, do you have a minute? I've got something important to tell you. And Betty replies, of course, but they better not let Mr. Jameson see them because he's in one of his usual horrible moods. As if on cue, Jameson swings the door to his office open. He's in tan pants today and a white shirt with the sleeves rolled up. Busy man that J. Jonah Jameson. A green tie loose on his neck, chomping a cigar as usual, and he wastes no time screaming. Parker, I thought I heard you. JJ steps out of his office and onto the next panel, walking towards Pete. Pack your bags, kid. Cosmos Film is making a movie of Spider-Man on the coast, and they claim the real Spider-Man is starring in it. Pete, looking at JJ over his shoulder, is pumped. He asks if that means JJ wants him to get pictures, while thinking to himself, I hope he's sending me. This is the perfect excuse to give Aunt May, but I wanted to tell Betty first. Betty in the foreground goes hand to chin immediately, a look of worry on her face. We get a close-up of Pete in the next panel, and he is cheesing as he thinks, It sure will be great, though. I'll get a bundle from Mr. Cosmos and make some additional money from old JJJ for the pics I take. Aunt May will never have to worry again. This is a great boon for the young goldenrod. But Betty, HCC, that's hand to chin, HCC level at collarbone, takes Pete's grin as a sign of impending guilt. She says, you look mighty happy, Peter Parker. I suppose you can't wait to meet all those Hollywood beauties. Pete turns around in the final panel with his hands raised defensively, telling Betty that's not why he was smiling and that she knows how he feels about her. Didn't he take on die? No, Hot Rod, I know. But Betty's not having it. Both hands at her sides, Betty gets petty. She says, that's perfectly all right, Mr. Parker. I don't claim to be as glamorous as those starlets or that blonde Liz Allen you've been walking home from school with lately. You not low, Pete, walking Liz Allen home from school? What are you doing? You didn't tell me about this? Shady. The best part about this whole panel, JJ is in the foreground, staring at them both out of the corner of his eyes, holding his cigar with an expression on his face that says, better you than me, kid. But he doesn't say a word. That has to be a first for the miserable magnate. 
On page 7, we find Pete at home in the living room with Aunt May, who's wearing a green full-length dress and glasses as she sits with sewing needles in hand, knitting a pink fabric. Pete's ditched his tie and has his hands in his pockets with his head lowered as May tells him she thinks he's too young to go traipsing around the country. And Pete reminds her that he's a senior in high school now, about to go to college. May doesn't care. She reminds Pete that he's fragile. Next panel, Pete pleads his case. Look, suppose I promise to dress warm, eat three good meals a day, and take my allergy pills every morning. Please, Aunt May, this means so much to me. Pete wants to do this, he wants to make Aunt May's life better. He's gonna advocate for himself. Always advocate for yourself. You know what you want, you know what you need, you know if it's gonna better your life. If you know that truly, fight for it. That's what Pete's doing right here. Always leading by example, the goldenrod kid. And May says he's right, that she can't keep him tied to her apron strings forever, and that he may go. I love this panel. May is in the foreground staring through her bifocals, the old school ones with the little arcs of magnified glass on the bottom of the glasses. They remind me of the glasses my Nana used to wear when she was reading her paper. Shoutouts to my Nana, Ditko, working. And so, the little cast of characters in our true-to-life drama are soon assembled on the Cosmos Productions movie lot in Hollywood. Surrounded by a production crew, BJ stands stage right with a raised hand telling the cast of the movie that he wants to win another Oscar and they can only do that with action, action, action. In the center of the panel, Spidey, his hands on his hips, is giving props to the makeup man thinking whoever worked on the other actors is a genius because they really do look like the enforcers he battled in New York. And on stage left, we see the enforcers and Green Goblin standing in front of a stage light. Montana twirling his Honda, as usual, cigarette in mouth, and Ox are both ice grilling Spidey as Fancy Dan, his cigarette holder in hand, stares at Green Goblin with a raised eyebrow. Ox, all about that action, says he wishes they could tackle Spidey right now, but Green Goblin tells him to be patient, that they should wait until they're on location. The next panel, they're on location, in New Mexico, where filming is about to begin as a film crew unloads a red truck in the desert surrounded by dust and cactus. Someone says they have 30 minutes to set up and they're shooting the big fight scene first, as someone else marvels at the scenery, saying it feels like they're on the edge of the world. In the final panel, Spidey is sitting in the foreground, his left hand on his knee, his right clutching the movie script, as he looks over his shoulder at Goblin and the Enforcers. Green Goblin asks, the Enforcers all grinning wickedly around him, if Spidey wants to go practice the fight scene while the crew is setting up the cameras, and Ox adds that they want to make sure nobody gets hurt. And Spidey says that's fine with him. He's not new to this life, and if anybody knows practice makes perfect, it's the golden liability. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity page. page! Page 8. Just in time to witness Green Goblin mount his broomstick in the foreground. In the background, Spidey is standing with his hands on his hips, Ox on his left, Fancy Dan on his right, and Montana standing about six feet away, twirling that Honda. Green Goblin says, Now... In the first scene, I'm the leader of the Enforcers, and I fly in to tell them to destroy you. And Spidey replies, that isn't how it was written in my script. Before Ox makes his move, screaming Spidey doesn't have the right script, he punches the golden liability in the back of the head in the next panel, sending the war crawler stumbling forward. Spidey screams that if Ox tries that again, he'll forget to suggest the movie and revert to his one rule. Fist, swing him if you got him. Before handstanding into a huh. backflip in the next ha. panel. His spidey sense of blaze, he screams, he must be nuts to swing so hard. And wait, why are my spider senses tingling this way? Holy smoke, I must be the world's prized chump. It's a trap. They're not actors. They really are the enforcers. Surrounded by the trio in the next panel, Spidey screams, too bad, boys. I'm wise to you now. And clenches his fist, ready for some arachno cardio. 
But Goblin, soaring overhead, replies, Too bad for you, fool. It's too late. You're surrounded. Before the enforcers strike, Spidey leaps above huh. Montana's throne lasso on the next panel, screaming that surrounding him and beating him are two different things, telling Montana he's too slow to catch him with his lasso. But Spidey's forgotten that this trio is all about teamwork. Fancy Dan lunges at Spidey, saying Montana may not be fast enough, but he is, and decks Spidey in the back of the head. In the final panel, we get a gorgeous panel as after punching Spidey, Fancy Dan flips away on a handstand, creating an opening for the ox who lumbers forward and cracks Spidey across the jaw with a haymaker. It's a gorgeous panel. Dicko knows action. We turn the page and we got action. Spidey, agility on, you already know, braces his full body weight on his left hand and sprays a shot of webbing at the lumbering ox saying he only needs a backflip and webbing to deal with the big bruiser. But Spidey spoke too soon. Montana's Honda wraps around our hero's right ankle mid-flip as Ox screams that Spidey can't outthink all of them. Spidey doesn't agree. Slipping free of Montana's lasso in the next panel, his Spidey sense activates as Fancy Dan rushes him once more from behind. But this time, Spidey's ready for him. He grabs the judo expert and tosses him over his shoulder in the next panel. <laughs> sending the diminutive Dapper Dan crashing into Montana, telling him his speed and judo skills mean nothing if he can't get close enough to use them. Ox screams he's going to finish Spidey off, but he's got to know you got to hit the webhead to hurt the webhead, and Spidey is done being caught off guard. Ox throws a haymaker in the next panel that Spidey avoids with a forward flip. Ox screams that it's impossible for anyone to be this fast, and Spidey, in his bag now, mid-flip says it ain't impossible when you have the strength and speed of a spider before hitting the ground and twisting into another backflip in the next panel, thinking he's clear and he has to warn the film crew about the enforcers. But Spidey's forgotten about the biggest threat, as Green Goblin screams from off panel that Spider-Man can't escape him. In the final panel, Goblin, zooming by, high above Spidey on his broomstick, reaches into his literal bag of tricks and pulls out a grenade, hurling out the webhead who dodges the explosive, saying he's sure Green Goblin is the brains of this outfit. Goblin, Pulling another grenade, says Spidey doesn't know the half of it. Page 10 opens to a gorgeous action shot in a golden rod negative space as Spidey, racing forward, low to the ground, smoke enveloping him, thinks the goblin is throwing stun grenades and he can't keep dodging them as Green Goblin tosses another grenade from his broomstick in the background. Too far away to let his special team take over, Spidey goes for the backups and falling backwards, sprays webbing at Green Goblin from both shooters as another grenade explodes at his feet. But Goblin's glider is too nimble and he dodges the greatest invention of all time, easily screaming that Spidey should just quit now and save them both some trouble. But Montana has other ideas. He says Spidey shouldn't quit yet because he wants to have his fun first. Off panel, as usual when the action's on, he snares Spidey around the torso, managing to loop the webhead six times before nodding the Honda. As Spidey thinks he's finally been caught by Montana's lasso. And he's right. They've battled twice already, and Montana's managed to always grab a hand or a foot, but never flush like this. To be fair though, Montana never had room to maneuver like this in the previous fight. It's impressive, I gotta say. The guy's got skills, but Spidey's got grit. On his tiptoes, he thinks, but one thing he didn't count on is my power of chest expansion. And flexing, he burst the laureate of the lariat's rope in the next panel. But that took time, and you gotta be moving to be fast. Ox and Fancy Dan close the distance between themselves and Spidey in the space between panels, and now their teamwork is getting surgical. Remember in episode 10 when I said Ox was outside? I'm convinced Ox is from the South Bronx chopping block because he and Fancy Dan pulled a Jerome Avenue special. The old 1105 surprise. The old bowling for blindsides play. The old 
Bet you didn't see that coming. And Fancy Dan block tackles Spidey's right knee as Ox snaps Spidey's head back with a right uppercut. The classic Jerome Avenue high-low defense. Ox was outside. And in the final panel, we see for the first time Spidey felled by the enforcers. He hits the dirt causing sand to rise around him as Ox screams they've waited a long time for this. And he and Fancy Dan punch in for work. Pummeling the webhead while Montana runs up screaming, let me at him. Eleven opens to a scene out of Looney Tunes. The enforcers in a red negative space struggle to control the webhead who's fighting so hard, we can't even see him beneath the cloud of smoke he's kicked up. Montana asks why Ox and Fancy Dan can't hold him. Ox screams, how can a runt be this strong? And says he can't get a swing on Spidey. He throws one and cracks Fancy Dan, who calls him a brainless lummox and tells him to watch where he's swinging. The next panel, Spidey at the bottom of the dog pile has had enough. Smoke around his eye, Ox's elbow on his chin, Montana's knee on his forehead. He thinks, I've got to summon all my spider strength now, while they least expect it, while they're all confused, before pushing his arms and legs wide while balancing on his shoulder blades in the next panel, saying the party's over. All three go flying as Spidey hops on the floor. It's a gorgeous panel. And Fancy Dan's hat falls off, and we see for the first time that the man shampoos and conditions because he's got a beautiful head of auburn hair. He really is the fanciest. Spidey, back on his feet now, snacks tumbleweed with webbing from both shooters and whips up a mini sandstorm. The golden New Mexico tornado is working. He thinks, this will give me the smoke screen I need to escape them. Before darting through the dust he's kicked up in the final panel using his spider sense to guide himself through. But... Although the young web spinner is able to outmaneuver the enforcers, there is still another foe who can fly above the dust cloud. And Green Goblin, on both knees on his broomstick, is flying high above the sandstorm watching for any sign of Spider-Man. But Spidey's whipped up a heavy, heavy sandstorm and he's made sure he's covered so Goblin can't do anything except wait. While Spidey's racing through dirt and sand fighting for his life, back home in Forest Hills, Aunt May, in a comfortable brown sweater and blue dress, is writing Peter a letter. And it says... And I hope you're taking your vitamin pills, Peter dear. Also, be sure to get enough sleep. You know how easily you tire. She worries so. Meanwhile, at the soda parlor, Liz, the red collar on her blouse pop, walks into the fountain shop where the gang are hanging out and asks if anyone there has gotten a letter from Peter Parker yet. She's really, really feeling the kid. Of course, one of the gang, a sandy boy in a brown t-shirt and gray slacks, he's got some weight on him, so he's probably a teammate of Flash's, says, I thought Liz was your gal, Flash. How come she's so interested in Parker? Liz Allen doesn't belong to anyone. Flash storms up to her in the next panel, his hands on his hips in a huff, and tells her to admit it. Admit it! That she's only making a fuss about Parker to make him jealous, and that she knows Parker's a big zero compared to him. And Liz, a devilish smirk on her lips, asks Flash how much rent he pays in the dream world he lives in. She walks right up to Flash so they're face to face in the next panel, and the two get into a shouting match, right there at the soda fountains. Drama! Liz says, Peter is a dreamboat. He's sensitive, intelligent, articulate. You probably don't know what those words mean. But Flash doesn't believe that. He shouts back, nuts! He's scared of his own shadow, and you know it! Meanwhile, at the Daily Bugle, we see Jameson stirring the pot. Sitting at his desk with his legs crossed, lighting a cigar in a brown suit and yellow tie. He says, Parker, better bring me back some sensational pictures of Spider-Man. I don't want to find out that he's wasting his time dating those Hollywood glamour girls. And Pete's like 17 years old. Why would Jameson say this? A 17-year-old photographer in Hollywood, I do not think he's going to be the guy that the starlets are chasing after. Starting trouble. And Betty, HTC level, 
Well, there's a notepad in her hand, so it's blocking her from getting her hand to her chin. She thinks, oh no, I mustn't even let myself think such thoughts about him. I mustn't. So we know Jameson loves a little office drama. Maybe it makes the day go by quicker. Maybe he just likes seeing Pete and Betty get into it. Either way, I'm thinking Pete's going to be in for it if he makes it out of New Mexico. But how astonished any of the folks back home would be if they could see what's happening now. In the final panel, Spidey runs out of the dust cloud and into a cave in the background. But he's not out of the woods yet. The Green Goblin spots him from the air and shoots off to get the enforcers. Inside the cave, colored in gray and light blue hues, Spidey rests against a natural pillar thinking, I hear them out there. They're after me again. The Goblin must have seen where I went and tipped the enforcers off. But at least I have a chance to catch my breath. Say, what are they doing now? In the next panel, we see what the enforcers are doing, working together, as usual. They push a massive boulder over the mouth of the cave, Ox annoyed that he's doing most of the work. But to be fair, if you call yourself Ox, you gotta know, eventually you're gonna have to move some big weight. Green Goblin, bracing against the cave wall and pushing the boulder with both his feet, shouts, That does it. This is the only exit from the cave. He'll never be able to rush past us now. This boulder will stop him. And with the exit sealed, the four villains enter the cave in search of the spider. In the next panel, Montana, new Honda in hand, is trailing behind in order Little Dan, Ox, and finally Green Goblin in the foreground. And he says it's powerful dark in here. That's what he says, here. Not here, here. That's how Stan writes a Midwesterner, here. <laughs> and wonders who's trapped in here with who, because he knows Spidey's vision is a lot better than theirs is in the dark. Green Goblin, never lacking in confidence, tells Montana not to be a fool because the four of them can handle a dozen Spider-Mans. But the Goblin's spoken too soon. In the next panel, Spidey goes on the offensive. Draped in shadow, he lifts Montana from the ground by the shoulders, whispering, I wouldn't bet on that. Don't make a sound, cowboy, unless you don't ever want to see that home on the range again. And Montana's response is, oop. He wants to see those deer and antelope play once more before the end. Fancy Dan tells Montana not to lag behind before realizing, a look of horror on his face in the next panel, that Montana's gone. Ox, his back to us, his left fist raised, says, Maybe he tripped on those nutty high-heeled boots of his. And they're Chelsea boots, Ox. You don't know about style, all right? Fancy Dan chose those boots for my man Montana. Don't come for him this way. Goblin, staring up at the ceiling, screams that Spider-Man's above them. But it's too little, too late, as Fancy Dan is snared and webbing and yanked from his feet in the final panel. Goblin, calling Spidey a fool for giving away his position, hurls a stun bomb at Spidey to open page 14, but Spidey dodges it easily, huh. leaping from the stalactite he's clinging to and into the next panel, screaming. You've had it, Goblin. You're not taking me by surprise now. Nobody can stop Spider-Man twice with the same old tricks. And that really is Spidey's MO. People usually get the best of Spidey when he doesn't know what he's dealing with, they don't usually get the best of him a second time using the same formula. You have to be ingenuitive. You have to keep switching it up if you want to deal with the Spider-Man. If you want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Spider-Man, you have to be unique enough to switch up your style. You got to have multiple styles. Coming in just straight, thinking you're going to stop him with the same old tricks. Look, those two fists, you know the rule. Back two. Goblin tosses another bomb at Spidey, saying he's planned too carefully to be thwarted now. But we know, once the villain starts talking about how well they've planned, they're probably halfway to defeat. Spidey, standing on the ceiling with both feet upside down, sprays webbing from both shooters with a loud swap over the cave passageway, screaming, Well, I'm sure gonna try. Here, this web of mine ought to hold you in a snug little pocket until you holler, Uncle. With the passageway webbed up, Goblin can't follow him. And Goblin says that's nothing. Hopping from his broomstick in the next panel, he turns the exhaust off his flying machine, on the web saying they can't hold him. He's gonna burn his way out. 
Meanwhile, Oculus of Boulder saying he's going to use it to get Spidey down from the ceiling. But Spidey, falling from the ceiling and landing on the boulder quickly, tells Ox he'll save him the trouble. And cracks the Enforcer's muscle with an uppercut from atop the boulder, screaming Ox looks tired. He's going to give him a Spidey love tap to help him sleep. My, how the turntables. But Goblin's burned through Spidey's webbing and back on his broomstick. He's back to hurling stun bombs at the webhead, saying Spidey forgot about him to open page 15. Spidey leaps out of the way of an explosion, his left leg extended, his right bent, his body upside down, dick co-working, as Spidey replies, Oh, you sure got a subtle way of reminding me. So Green Goblin's throwing another smoke bomb and the smoke is filling the air. And when it clears, Spider-Man's astonished eyes behold the strongest living being to walk the earth. Appearing like a nightmarish colossus, his baleful eyes glowering with hatred and fury, the Incredible Hulk lunges forward. Things are about to pick up. And Spidey, holding a web line in his left hand, clinging to the stalagmite growing from the cave floor, shouts, Holy Hannah! Of all the caves to pick for a fight, we had to pick one the Hulk was hiding in. As Green Jeans lumbers through the smoke towards him, his purple pants and tatters, his left fist clenched, larger than Spidey's head. He lunges at our hero in the next panel, along horizontal with his hands outstretched, trying to grab hold of Spidey, screaming, Even here, deep in my hidden caves, you attack me. But no one can capture the Hulk. Hulk may be the strongest there is, but Spidey's agility is still best ever, and he leaps from his perch on a cave huh. drip and over the Hulk's arms, screaming, Capturing you? Brother, I don't even want to share the same planet with you. Quipping. And Green Goblin is not a stupid man. Watching from a safe distance above it all in the next panel, he thinks this is good fortune, and all he has to do is sit back and watch as Hulk finishes Spidey off. Spidey, clinging to a pillar of stalagmite, that's tights and mites connecting, tries to reason with the Hulk. Hold it, big man. We've got no reason to fight. Let me explain. But Hulk doesn't want to listen to reason. He doesn't want to hear it either. He swings at the webhead, who backflips up and out huh. of the way as a giant green man destroys his perch, the Hulk screaming. No, never again will I be tricked by the lying words of an enemy. My only defense against mankind is my strength, and nothing will stop me from using it. Spidey crawls up to the ceiling to open page 16 on Hulk's homemade stalactite, thinking he can't reason with the Hulk, so he has to stay out of the monster's reach. Before Hulk brings the whole column down in the next panel with both fists, saying this cave was the only place he could be free of torment, and Spidey won't drive him from it. In the next panel, falling towards the ground, Spidey thinks that maybe he can surprise Hulk with a sudden attack. Falling with desperate speed, Spidey lands on the back of the strongest ever, thinking it's like landing on a rock pile. As Hulk reaches back to grab him, Spidey webs up his hands with spray from his right shooter shouting that his webbing ought to stop him. But his theory falls apart in practice as Hulk rips the webbing apart easily in the next panel, breaking less than less of a sweat. Page 17 opens to a murder attempt as the Hulk, annoyed at the spider on his back, throws himself into the cave wall, hoping to crush the golden liability. Leaping from the behemoth's back huh. just in time, and in the next panel, his feet planted squarely on the floor in a goldenrod space, Spidey's had enough. Both fists clenched, he rushes toward the Hulk, screaming, Okay, Hulk, I tried to reason with you, tried to explain I'm not your enemy, but if it's a fight you want, I'll show you that Spider-Man isn't exactly a weakling either. Yeah, Spidey, take it to the world's strongest. Lefty and righty are about to clock in. In a gorgeous panel, Spidey cuts loose and swinging with all his might, screams, Ever been smacked by a guy with the proportionate strength of a spider? Well, Turner Brain, there's only the first time. And cracks the Hulk across the jaw so hard that we don't even see the Hulk's face. Just the shock of the impact in reds and yellows. It's a beautifully drawn lunging punch 
and any other person's head would have surely exploded on impact from it. But Hulk's not any other person. Hulk's Hulk, and if there's one thing Hulk can take, it's a punch. Spidey, nursing his right hand now in the next panel, realizes there's no way he can stop the Hulk as the monster barrels towards him saying Spidey thinks he's a brainless fool but would think differently if he knew the truth. And I assume Hulk is alluding to the fact that his alter ego is walking brilliance before wrenching a boulder from the ground and tossing it at the webhead in the final panel screaming that Spidey will get tired soon and the Hulk never does. On page 18, Spidey back on the ceiling after his failed one hit quitter is dodging for dear life and he thinks he needs to change tactics before he gets an idea. And it comes not a moment too soon as Hulk is carrying another boulder. Spidey thinks, if this doesn't work, it's goodbye Spider-Man, but I've gotta chance it. And landing in front of Hulk in the next panel shouts, Okay, Hulk, let's settle this now, man to man. And Spidey ain't said nothing but a word. Hulk tosses the boulder, a boulder literally the size of himself, over his shoulder with his right hand like it's a pebble. And squaring up with Spidey in the next panel, says he knows Spidey's planning a trick, but nothing will help him escape the bruising Hulk is about to lay on him as Spidey thinks he was right before. He isn't so dumb, but I can't back down now. We get a close-up of Spidey in profile, the right side of his face facing us, in a goldenrod negative space, his spidey sense ablaze as he thinks he has the time perfectly using that spider sense because he can't afford to miss by even a split second. In the next panel, we see Hulk's head sized fist tap against Spidey's jaw, and Spidey thinks he's got to roll with the punch, and he does. The next panel, we see Academy Award winning superhero Spider Man hamming it up as he throws his head and arms back. His right leg out in front of him, he falls back onto a stone thinking even though Hulk hardly touched him, it's the hardest he's ever been punched, and Spidey's been punched by Dr. Doom. Hulk screams that once he takes care of Spidey, he'll deal with the other people in the cave. And Spidey, his hand to his forehead, his Spidey sense still erupting in his head says, If it's all the same to you, Hulk, I wish you'd tackle them first. But he's thinking to himself, he'll lean against the boulder, pretending to be stunned as the Hulk barrels towards him with both mighty fists raised. I just imagine, zoom, 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 zoom of Hulk's footsteps as he rushes towards Spider-Man? That has to be terrifying. I am five foot 10. This thing is seven feet tall and you can't teach that. And it's barreling towards me and it just punched me. I took all the edge off going with the blow and it's still the hardest I've ever been hit. The bravery Spidey has to have now to sit here and let this behemoth barrel towards him. I would be shook. But you know the rule when Spidey's in the corner. Spidey's gonna leap. At the last moment, in the last panel, Spidey hops straight up in over huh. green jeans who puts all his muscle into the hammer fist swing, pulverizing the boulder, but missing the webhead. That boulder is dust now. Sand now. It has to be. 19 opens with Spidey racing towards the entrance to the cave, shouting that when he gets outside, nothing can stop him because he's the fastest and most agile when he's got room to move. And that's a fact. In the next panel, the Green Goblin, grin in place, pajama hat whipping behind him as he speeds towards the entrance himself, is spotted by Spidey who thinks, there's the Goblin, he's trying to escape too. He's deserting the enforcers, like the rat he is. In the next panel, Spidey makes his move and lunging towards the Goblin, he grabs hold of the back of the villain's broomstick, screaming that he always wondered what would happen if a spider tackled a rat. Goblin screams, Spider-Man! 
before aiming his glider towards the ceiling in the next panel, screaming again. You should have fled while you had the chance. Here on my flying broomstick, the advantage is mine. As Spidey hangs on for dear life with his right hand, thinking Green Goblin is trying to roast him with the fire from the tail end of his broomstick. Spidey, fatigued from his battle with the Hulk, thinks his arms and legs feel like wood, so he can't maneuver how he normally does. But Spidey's fearless, so you already know. He thinks, I've gotta let go. If I stay here, I'm finished. Relax, Petey Boy, go limp, fall easy, like a spider. And Petey Boy lets go, trusting his fate to the fates. If Spidey's in free fall, he usually hits the East River, but here in the cave, the small pool beneath him will do just fine. He hits the water as Goblin watches from his broomstick, circling the small cave pond, gloating. Well, well, Spider-Man proved easier to defeat than I would have guessed. He fell in that small spring and hasn't come up yet. What a triumph for the Green Goblin. But Spidey ain't afraid of no goblin. He's trying to avoid the Incredible Hulk, who is still searching for him. Hulk lumbers past as Spidey thinks that his spider stamina lets him hold his breath for double the time a normal human can endure. The average human can hold their breath for anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes. You know I'm gonna lead on the larger side here because Spidey's my guy, so I'm thinking he can hold his breath for four minutes. He creeps out of the water, hiding behind a rock so the Hulk, still in search, doesn't spot him, and remembers that the Enforcers are still trapped in the cave. If Hulk finds them, smash is an understatement. None of those men could take one punch from the Hulk. I don't care how many phone books you're beating up or judo chops you're slinging out. There are no chops in judo, so... Spidey crawling along the ceiling trails Hulk in the next panel thinking he has to be a nitwit for trying to save the Enforcers, but he's going to do it anyway. Great power. You already know the rest. He watches Hulk leave through a passageway thinking, he's taking the long way around. With my speed, I should be able to take the other four and have them out of here before he can reach the spot where they are. As good as his word, the amazing Spider-Man emerges from the cave a few seconds later. And we see Montana, webbed up tighter than his lasso toss on Spidey, unconscious, sitting on a mound of dirt outside of the cave as Spidey carries the unconscious ox over his right shoulder and the unconscious fancy Dan like a purse in his left. An army copter pulls up to the scene and Spidey thinks they have perfect timing. He dumps the enforcers onto the ground and leapfrogging a boulder in the next huh. panel says there's no reason for him to stay because once the enforcers are spotted, the rest will be routine. But I'm not so sure. I don't think the enforcers have ever operated outside of New York City as a crime syndicate, so they could be back on the street before nightfall. I guess time will tell. You know I like seeing them, so I hope they don't get hit with the book. A short time later, at a plush Hollywood suite of offices, BJ, back in his all-white suit, orange designer shirt, and yellow ascot, is getting some bad news from a guy with brown hair, wearing a JJP-colored cap and pants with a yellow button up. He's Lakers Nation, and he says, Sorry, BJ, the movie's a fizzle. The Green Goblin flew away. Spider-Man vanished, and the army turned the enforcers over to the police. And BJ is as Hollywood as it gets. He points a finger towards the ceiling, screaming, they can't do this to BJ Cosmos. Call my lawyer. We'll sue. The green-suited yes-man behind him asks, who can they sue? Like, BJ, you're losing it. And BJ says, what's the difference? They'll find somebody. And I hope that's not how things work in Hollywood. I hope things don't just go wrong and you, like, close your eyes and just pick somebody to put litigation against. That makes absolutely no sense. But, you know, I don't know. So I got to go for what BJ's saying here. And BJ's saying somebody's going to get sued. In the next panel, Purple Cap continues saying they couldn't find Spider-Man or the Green Goblin because the Hulk was sighted in the area and nobody would stay out there knowing that. And BJ's eyes light up. Jabbing his forehead with his left pointer finger, he screams, The Hulk? Did you say the Hulk? 
holds everything. What an inspiration. He's even better than Spider-Man. He's a genuine monster. The public will love him. Quick, draw up a contract for him. Purple Cap needs a raise because he seems to be the only one willing to talk sense to BJ and not just yes him to death. He asked how they can make the Hulk sign a contract. But BJ's already gone, lost in the distortion field of the rich and powerful. Pointing at the ceiling, beaming, he shouts, Don't bother me with petty details. I can see it all now. A cast of thousands will get Doris Day to sing the hit song based on the title, The Honey and the Hulk. We'll get a hundred dancing girls. This guy's really just trying to find an excuse to throw hundreds of dancing women into a movie. He's no visionary. He's a creep. And Doris Day was an American actress, singer, and animal welfare activist. She began her career as a big band singer in 1939, achieving commercial success in 1945 with two number one recordings, Sentimental Journey and My Dreams Are Getting Better All the Time. Doris Day was also, as most people mentioned in these early Spider-Man comics, one of the biggest film stars in the 50s and 60s. She was one of America's greatest starlets of the golden age of Hollywood and is known for her performances in Calamity Jane and Pillow Talk, for which she was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress. In 2004, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 2008, she received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as a Legend Award from the Society of Singers. As of 2020, she was one of eight record performers to have been the top box office earner in the United States four times. She did it all. She sang. She danced. She released almost 30 studio albums. During filming of The Man Who Knew Too Much, Doris Day, seeing how the animals were treated, began actively preventing animal abuse in the movies that she worked on. In that movie in particular, she was so upset about the conditions the animals used in filming were kept in that she refused to work unless they were properly fed and cared for. The production company had to set up feeding stations for the various goats, sheep, camels, etc. and feed them every day before Day would agree to go back to work. She co-founded Actors and Others for Animals in 1971 with Mary Tyler Moore, Angie Dickinson, and Jane Meadows, three legendary starlets in their own right. In 1978, she founded the Doris Day Pet Foundation, now the Doris Day Animal Foundation. All in all, a true legend. In the next panel, BJ tells Purple Cap to get on the plane, fly out to New Mexico, and not to come back without the Hulk signature on a contract. If Purple Cap goes into that cave, he's not coming back with arms, legs, a head, a torso, or anything else, let alone a contract. He knows this, he stutters through a butt, trying to find a word to say he's not doing it, when Spidey web swings through the window, getting right to his problems. Mr. Cosmos, I want to talk to you. From now on, you better be more careful about the people you hire, especially your villains. BJ, a black and mild in his lips, one eye closed, lights a cigar telling Spidey he's sorry, but they can't use him anymore because they're starting on a new picture. But if Spidey leaves his number, they may be able to use him as an extra. And Spidey, hand on his hips, used to dealing with the Hollywood types, webs up the tip of BJ's cigar and his lighter, asking what about his contract. In the final panel, BJ, struggling to remove the webbing, says Spidey should have read the fine print. The fine print? In case you're smart enough to read this far, please note that you will receive not a single penny if this movie isn't completed. We didn't make all these donuts by pitching dimes into movies with real costume superheroes. Oh, and you can't sue Cosmos when he doesn't pay you because he's a big deal. If you haven't heard, he won an Oscar for the nameless thing from the Black Lagoon in the Murky Swamp. You only beat Crusher Hogan once. You're no star. That's some insulting fine print. Well... All fine print is insulting. It preys on the Siamese excitement and hides the devil in the details. Back to Spidey doesn't even get upset. He's used to being ripped off by cigar-chomping magnates and asks BJ, You're not related to J. Jonah Jameson by some chance, are you? And just like JJ, BJ gives Spidey a wad of cash, just enough to avoid feeling like a crook and a swindler, and tells Spidey, Don't call us, we'll call you. And so...
We see the goldenrod kid, SJB suit, red tie, border buses, a green-suited, blonde-haired driver shouts, all aboard for New York, taking a seat. Pete thinks, by taking a bus, I'll save enough to be able to give some money to Aunt May. I wonder if any other mass superheroes have to worry about pinching pennies the way I do. Aw, nuts! That's what he thinks. Aw, nuts! But, using his flying broomstick, the mysterious Green Goblin reaches the eastern metropolis a few hours ahead of Spider-Man and glides to a smooth landing in his murky hideout. And Green Goblin touches down in his secret lair, monologuing internally the whole time. Too bad my little scheme backfired. Once the Enforcers had helped me defeat Spider-Man, I intended to organize a worldwide crime syndicate with them as my lieutenants. I never thought Spider-Man could defeat all three of them. His back to us, he pulls his mask off in the next panel and continues. My biggest mistake was not realizing that the area I chose for the battle was the Hulk's stomping grounds. It was he who turned the tide against me. It just proves how hard it is to make a career crime. You never can think of everything. He dons a brown suit with a blue pinstripe tie, his face hidden behind the door of a safe, and continues. But my true identity is still my own secret, and my power is still undiminished. So I'll wait for my next opportunity and strike again. The world hasn't heard the last of the Green Goblin. Whoever the Green Goblin is, he's got plans and aspirations for world domination and believes the only person who could stop him is the Golden Liability. This does not bode well for the Wall Crawler. And a short time later, a quiet, thoughtful teenager leaves a bus at a midtown terminal and slowly heads for the subway, wondering what new surprises and unpredictable fate holds in store for him. And Pete walks down a busy New York street, travel bag in hand, back at home in the city we know and love, as busy people move towards their destinations all around him. And Pete's thinking, the Green Goblin is somewhere in the city. My spider instinct can sense it. But where? He could be any place. He could be anyone. I must never relax my guard. And he's not wrong, but the final caption box is proof that when it rains, it pours. It says, But although he doesn't yet suspect it, our young hero will have a far different arch foe to battle before the Green Goblin again appears, and we'll tell you all about it next issue. So be here. We hate talking to ourselves. And we're out. Unless you're completely new to the Spider-Man mythos, you already know the havoc Green Goblin is going to wreak in the life of our hero. It's hard for me to lock in on one favorite when it comes to Spidey villains because most of them are awesome and all of them are pretty great at least. But Green Goblin always hovers somewhere near the top. He's that menacing, that cunning, that ruthless. And for me, that's exactly what I want a villain to be. It almost forces your hero to toe that line and be good because that villain is who they could become using their great power selfishly. I had no idea Goblin started off with this approach to rid the world of Spider-Man. It's cartoonish almost. It's a very strange first appearance and a great one. Y'all know I love me some Enforcers and the way they team up. If Spidey was any other hero, he'd have been done for and they'd be the lieutenants of the world. What a tale. I'm excited to see what all the villains included in this episode's future appearances will bring and excited for you to come along as I do. And that's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support this show on Patreon.com, patrons get a bonus show every week where I've run through comics from all over the universe of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we have the Immortal Iron Fist Annual Number 1. Did you know that every Iron Fist has their story recorded in the Book of the Iron Fist, but there are two stories missing? The first is our current Iron Fist, Danny Rand. The second, the Iron Fist responsible for the wealth Danny Rand throws around, Orson Randall. Draped in secrecy, his story has remained hidden from the world until now. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join me. 
Head over to patreon.com slash HSPP and sign up to the Key Keeper or High Council tiers now to learn the story of the Iron Fist, who's just as quick to shoot you as Judo Chop. There are no chops in. I'm not going to stop. All the thanks one more time to you for listening, and a very special thanks to the home team, the Right Minders, the Key Keepers, and the High Council. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and your support is the engine behind this wonderful crazy train we're on. Being the conductor goes hand-in-hand with me being grateful. Truly. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.